0: Powerhouse literary couple Geraldine Brooks and Tony Horowitz didn't start their careers writing books. The two were war correspondents covering events like the Gulf War in the 1990s. Horowitz recalls his most enduring memory on the battlefield.
1: And I was right where the the soldiers were jumping off into the first wave attack, and they were opening the hatches on their tanks and puking as one would, Mm -hmm. throwing me letters. The terror and the insanity of it, that here we were, you know, men in big hunks of metal going to fight each other, and, you know, this is, society has failed when you get to that point.
0: Now those experiences, he says, inform his writing. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Tony Horwitz is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and has written several bestsellers, including Midnight Rising, about a raid in the slave-holding South that sparked the Civil War. His wife, Geraldine Brooks, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historical novelist. Her first novel, Year of Wonders, was an international bestseller and translated into 25 languages. Her latest book, The Secret Cord*, is based on the life of King David. Good evening. Welcome. The couple was on stage in March as part of a lecture series held by the literary organization Aspen Words. Aspen Words is part of the Aspen Institute. Horwitz and Brooks were drafted as foreign correspondents after they married in 1984. They covered conflicts in the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. The duo won an Overseas Press Club Award for their coverage of the Gulf War. After a scary experience of being jailed in a Nigerian prison, reporter Geraldine Brooks decided to transition to novels. Here is Brooks and Horowitz being interviewed by Julie Cummins Pickrell, the former director of Aspen Words. Please note, Brooks' microphone is a little scratchy at times. Here's Pickrell.
2: Um, I wanted to touch uh, briefly on your early careers as war correspondents and um, as journalists. You spent nearly a decade covering conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere, and I'm I'm curious how that experience shaped you as human beings, as writers, and how it carries forward and influences your, your work today.
1: I'm going to let Geraldine <laughs> answer that question and do the politician thing of not answering the question, and first saying just, it's great to be here.
3: So, I wouldn't be able to write the fiction if I hadn't had the journalism, because I'm still living off the fat of those experiences of barging into people's lives at the worst possible moment for them and you know the question of who who are you when catastrophe overtakes you and that's kind of the theme of all my novels really and it all comes from the journalism but it was completely accidental i mean There are people out there, I am sure, who grow up thinking, I am going to get a flak jacket and the khaki pants with too many pockets, and I'm going to go to war. That was not me. I thought it would be very nice to be a restaurant reviewer. (laughs) (laughs) And my first job on the Sydney Morning Herald entailed no bullets or bulletproof vests or chadors or anything of that nature. And... It was just completely accidental the way way led on to way in my journalism career, and just to point out how ridiculously unqualified I was, <laughs> the story that I wrote directly before becoming Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal was about global warming research in New Zealand, and. It was very advanced there because they have a lot of sheep. In fact, they have a factor of 160 to 1 sheep for people in New Zealand. And sheep are great producers of the greenhouse gas methane. And so I spent a week following climate scientists up verdant hillsides while they tried to capture methane samples from sheep. (laughs) I'll just let you think about that for a minute. And the, yeah, yeah, no. So the the piece ran in the Wall Street Journal, and that night we were watching three days of the Condor. I remember it quite vividly. And the phone rang, and it was the foreign editor. And this was not good. She had never called me since I'd taken up the job of reporting from Sydney. And uh, she had you know, bigger fish to fry as the Wall Street Journal's foreign editor. Um, and I thought, as I walked with a heavy heart towards the telephone to take the call, I thought I'm going to be fired for putting too many tasteless farting sheep jokes <laughs> in the Wall Street. <laughs> She's actually calling to see if I wanted to be the Middle East bureau chief. So go figure. Based on sheep. Based on farting <laughs> sheep. <about> sheep. <laughs> But you know, all the stories that I wrote about you know, terrible, heartbreaking situations, whenever I meet somebody who's at the Wall Street Journal in the same period that we were there, they always say, I'll never forget that fighting sheep story.
1: <laughs> um, well, if possible, I was even less prepared for this job because I wasn't offered it. I went with Geraldine to the <laughs> Middle East. Um, knowing no Arabic, having been to Israel as a bar mitzvah present for my immigrant grandfather who thought it would make me a great Jew. Um, uh, really, with limited, I had less journalistic experience than Geraldine. But in terms of how it may be fed into the books, uh, I've always been interested in the Civil War. And I think to have the experience, one of many insights we had while being out there was that people who aren't on the ground have no idea what's going on. We would, it wasn't, you didn't have really cable TV in those days, but we would hear what some talking head was saying in Washington about whatever war we were covering, and we would look at each other and say, oh my God, we're there. They don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I think it gave me a respect for being on the ground and understanding what war is like. And so then when I went to write about it in books, I, I feel it in maybe informs me a little more about the experience of the common soldier, also the holes in sort of academic history about war. If you've seen it up close, I think there's tremendous value in understanding just the emotional experience of that, the, you know, seeing soldiers as we did, you know, all the stuff about heroes, that's what we always hear about. My, perhaps my most enduring memory of all the wars we covered was the first day of, is it Desert Shield Storm? I can't keep track. The first, our first Gulf War. And I was right where the the soldiers were jumping off into the first wave attack, and they were opening the hatches on their tanks and puking, as one would, mm-hmm. throwing me letters. The terror of, you know, and the insanity of it, that here we were, you know, men in big hunks of metal going to fight each other, and sort of how this is, you know, this is, society has failed when you get to that point. So I, I think those kinds of insights uh, stuck with me more than anything.
3: And, and also, I'll never forget the first battlefield. Mm. And we were rarely together covering stories because it didn't make any sense to do that. It was better if we covered things from opposite sides. But this one time, we happened to both be in Iraq and they had just had a victory. The first Gulf War was the one between Iran and Iraq, the foreign subtitled version before the American blockbuster. And it went on for eight years. And, um, and so the Iraqis had had a rare victory against the Iranians, and they wanted to take the press to see it. So they took us down to the Fowl Peninsula, and it was horrible. It was horrible. It was just this battlefield strewn with the already fast decaying in that heat. World War I. Corpses of, of dead Iranian teenagers. And when you've seen it, World War I or Pickett's Charge, these, these were the human waves. It was
1: trenches, yeah.
3: Yeah, but, you know, I mean, Ugh. those kids had run right into a field of fire like Pickett's Charge as well. So, you know, the weapons are different, but the effect on the human body is exactly the same. And, you know, so I try not to dwell on those kind of memories. But when you're writing about war in fiction, I do go there.
1: Can I just no, take absolutely, 15 absolutely. seconds? I don't want to slow this down, but uh, this is here. an essential difference between Geraldine and myself. Again, I feel like I'm in a presidential debate here. <laughs> oh, difference! Um, we agree on almost everything. And but it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> we were... We were put on this helicopter and flown to the front, and we weren't being shot at specifically. But there was stuff flying by. We're in this helicopter, and it's some ancient Russian, you know, helicopter where they hadn't had spare parts, and you know, doors are open, and there weren't any doors. I, well, there weren't Don't any know. doors. That's what I mean. It was all open. There with about four other journalists and I'm having the normal human response, which I'm absolutely green with terror, and I reach for my spouse in that moment, she's nodded off. The turbulence, <laughs> I mean the helicopter is going like this, and the turbulence had put her to sleep. So <laughs> that's what you need to know about the difference between us, yeah.
3: Hello. Uh, all right, so you're telling oh, stories, so, I'll so tell we're never gonna get out of this. <laughs> This was a a fairly serious couple of days, but one of the things that was really horrible was that the Iraqis having won this like meaningless from here to there, to the exit sign, amount of desert, were busy turning the earthworks around so that they had a new front line. And they were doing it right over the top of the bodies of all these slain Iranian kids and they weren't even taking their IDs. And I'm thinking, you know, these parents will never know what happened their sons. And Tony jumps out and stands in front of the earth mover like the guy at Tiananmen Square and says, You can't do this. You have to you have to do something with these bodies. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I married him.
1: <laughs> okay, last interjection. She makes stuff up for a living. <laughs> I have no memory of this. I got very sick that day. I have no memory of this. Oh, he so did get sick. I, he
3: foolishly, some, they didn't I, give yeah. us any water, you know.
1: Yeah. So, so there was. There was take a, it with a big grab. There was an Iraqi dysentery.
3: journalist. <laughs> <laughs> there was an Iraqi journalist on this trip, and he came armed with six big gallon jugs of water. He says, you will dream of water. Yeah. And yeah, they didn't have any water yeah. for us That's And he drank degrees. out of some soldier's canteen Got and very sick. was laid out. And they wanted to take him away to the hospital in Basra. I said, no, no, over my dead body, you're taking him away.
1: <laughs> anyway, let's move on, Moving so to on. speak. I, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, um, getting more
2: current.
1: Yeah. Good. Thank God.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm re- very curious about your Process processes, uh, your your research to writing ratio, how it's similar, what you the way you research and write your books, and and how it's different. And I just wanted something that I read that that really um, grabbed my attention, Geraldine, that you said was that you don't. Gather all the information or as much information as you can, before starting, you actually start the writing process, and let the story tell you what you need to know and, um, and where it needs to go. Yeah. And, and so maybe you can start, and then we'll turn the question to Tony.
3: Yeah, I like to. Does that um, work? I like to do just enough research to be able to start. And then usually it's about getting the voice of the narrator. And once I know who's going to be telling me the story. Who she is tells me how she's gonna act and that sets the plot in motion within the, within the scaffolding of the historical story that I'm working with. And then I start writing and I write until I don't know something and then I go and find it out but, because I think there's a big risk if you do it the other way around that you will get some fascinating piece of research and you'll love it so much that even if the story doesn't need it, you will cram it in there, you know? And you've, I mean, I'm sure you've all read books like this. There was one that I, I was really enjoying this book, and then I realized that the author had spent a lot of time researching a particular thing, because at one point in the narrative it goes, he has to tune a piano, and the character says, it's really interesting that you know how to tune a piano. How do you do that? (laughs) And then there's five pages on how to tune a piano before you get back to the story.
1: I guess in, in one small respect, what I do writing about history is similar to Geraldine in that I try to start not knowing too much. I mean, if you know the answer to whatever question you're trying to or whatever, seeking out in a book, what's the point? You know, there mm-hmm. has to be that drive. So I like to know just enough that I think this is really intriguing. I want to give three years of my life to this subject, um, and and then dive in. So not know it all before I start. Um, I think the trick with uh, tricky part with what I do because I travel with my history. I'm not doing traditional history, and I'm going off on a journey in most cases, is that the reporting and the writing process are almost entirely opposite. When I'm traveling as I am now, except for this lovely break, I am just like a vacuum cleaner. I am just taking in everything I can get. You know, the more the better. I'm out every night in a bar. I'm scribbling. I'm just filling notebooks and piling it up. And then you got to sit down and write. And you essentially have to do the opposite. You have to throw away 90% of it. Mm-hmm. So as a travel, the travel part of what I do, you have to be the most open person in the world. And then as the writer part of it, you have to be the most ruthless and say, that was a lovely person I talked with for three days or hounded to interview me and went there and thank you so much. I'm sorry, you, you're, you're gonna slow the narrative. Um, so I, I think that's maybe a different,
3: yeah. I, I, I'm looking for a story where you can know something, but you can't know everything. If you could find it out, then why would you write a novel? So I'm looking for the voids. So I wanna know enough, you know, I love what Mark Twain said, um, fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be. <laughs> so I love these stories where The historical fact is so implausible that a a Native American youth raised in his own language and culture on Martha's Vineyard in the 1660s, learns Latin and Greek and goes off to study and graduate at Harvard with the sons of the Puritan colonial elite. If I made that guy up, that wouldn't be very interesting. But the fact that he actually did that is interesting. So those implausible truths, but if he had kept a journal every day of his time at Harvard and we had access to it, then it would be a story for Tony, not me.
1: Right. I mean, I need... uh, There are many stories I'm really intrigued by, historical stories, and there's just not enough there, and you need a a lot of meat, and so whatever. Those are the stories I suggest to her and vice versa.
2: So, and have you ever toyed with fiction? Are you just... Is it just absolutely not in your I what
1: toy briefly actually the summer after we met i we got out of journalism school and i had this weird uh, pause where i'd sent out a million job applications and was sort of waiting and my college roommate was living in eugene oregon and i went out there and just sort of lived with him and, among other things, donated blood um, to, (laughs) sold plasma or whatever and whatever to just pay the bills and tried writing fiction very briefly and it was terrible. Um, And I think you really are, maybe it's an excuse, but I think most people are, uh, Geraldine, I think, is really unusual in being wired for both. I think most of us are not and we all know writers who are Brilliant fiction. More often, it's brilliant nonfiction writers who try their hand at fiction and not so good. Um, and so I'm really actually thankful. Part of it, it means I really enjoy reading fiction. I don't read fiction and say, gee, why can't I do that? Or any, you know, I, I love reading fiction, but I've never written it at least on purpose, let's say. <laughs> let's put it that way.
2: Um, I'm, I'm curious about something that you said about the, the and, and I don't know if you have this in your process, Geraldine, where you go out into the world and you're this a vacuum and you're taking everything in, and then you come back and sort of have to do the 180. Um, is there a transition time? Is there a ritual? Is there is there anything you need to sort of do for the instrument to to, to shift
3: gears? Or is that just okay, that's that, and this is this? That was the beauty of being a journalist all those years. You just have to sit your backside in the chair and write the damn thing, you know. And all this writer's block thing, tell that to your desk, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You would be fired so fast. So we've never really been that precious about being in the right room or having the pencil sharpened or, you know all that kind of has to be you know heavy bond paper or any of that no yeah. no you know we we had to write under the most ridiculous conditions you know i can remember handwriting dispatches with a stub of a candle in kurdistan and we couldn't even phone it in because all the communications had been knocked out by the fighting so you handed your handwritten scrolls to a peshmerga who took it over the border to Turkey, and you didn't even know if it had got there until you heard on Voice of America what had run in the Wall Street Journal the next day. You know, so it makes you just sit down and get on with it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you're not waiting to get your aura in the right place, and <laughs> I, I think that is a great look. We complain. I mean, writers are famous for moaning and we do our share of moaning, but we mostly just do it to each other. And, you know, in reality, yeah, one, because of this journalistic experience where, you know, if you couldn't just get on with the writing, you were fired. But also, I mean, compared to what? You know, it's like, oh my God, I had a bad day at my desk. I mean, you know, (laughs) uh, compared to what? But all I would add is um, I find Uh, sort of as I did with journalism, it helps to start writing while you're reporting because it helps you to figure out what you have and what you don't have. And you you sort of have to be a writer while you're reporting um, and be a reporter while you're writing and figure out, you know, there's nothing worse than writing around holes in your research Mm -hmm. than sitting down and saying, oh my God, I didn't get this. Um, so if you're sort of even if it's just crap, which most of mine is, all of it is, on first <laughs> round, I'm, I'm I'm banging it. Oh yeah, banging it out just to figure out what do mm-hmm. I have, where is this going, what works on the page? Because I think any writer will tell you, or any nonfiction writer, you can think you've got great material, but if it doesn't work on the page for whatever reason, Mm. sorry, got to go. And- Roger
3: Angel came and spoke to us at Columbia University (laughs) and he described that first draft as the vomit out. The vomit out, and it really- The vomit hour?
1: Out.
2: Vomit out. out.
3: out. You just
1: (laughs) bill out what you think you might have and it's very clarifying and you realize, no, or yes. I mean, whatever the case may be. And that then helps Direct the rest of your research, you know. But she does something different. That I don't get.
2: Which may um, make my next question irrelevant, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, you're both known for for these just sort of brilliant nuggets of historic detail, the detail, the beautiful, rich detail um, in the in the physical world um, of your your characters. Have you had the experience where you come upon something in your research, maybe it's an event or an action that the, your, the figure you're writing about um, engaged in, or a physical detail um, that just sort of unlocks the key to the character or holds something in there? Is there? Can you give us an example, A, does that happen, or then do you go take it back to the desk and say, well, I thought I did, but it didn't really. Um, and, and if so, can you give us an example of something that just sort of went, ah,
3: now I... I think, you know, I think Tony and I both love to go to the place that we're writing about because there are things that you can't know until you've stood there. And, and yes, if you're writing about 3,000 years ago, there's not gonna be a lot that's the same, but some things are, like the way the light moves across the landscape or the smell when you tread on time plant, or rub hyssop between your fingers. And to the extent that you can have the same sensual experience that your character would have had and convey that, I think it gives a kind of immediacy to the work that allows you to then you know, create your Imagine an edifice, and to bring the reader along, believing that it might possibly have happened that way.
1: I guess I would say sometimes that happens with my thinking. Um, for instance, writing about John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. Yeah, as Geraldine said, I mean I really believe in the archive of the feet. You know, go to the places where the history happened, and you know, you, particularly if you've had some experience of war. To stand in Harper's Ferry, and I don't know if some of you have probably been there, and realize how demented his military plan was, mm-hmm. like that occupying the bottom of a river gorge was, you know, an essential position, um, was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Unlike Geraldine in the writing, I, uh, we all have strengths and weaknesses as writers, and um, HISSOP I would never put his, I don't even know what it is, um, in a story. Um,
3: sure, I, 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 can and go, go out and get some mint. Uh, yeah. And he is completely baffled. You know, like, I can explain exactly um, where it is, and he'll come back with privet. <laughs>
1: um, and frankly, I don't like books. I'm an impatient reader, and if I begin a book that's got some long, lovely, it's not that I don't love lovely landscapes, I just don't know how to write about them. Um, I go to Geraldine for that. Um, I'm much more comfortable with narrative and action and dialogue. Um, so, being in the place informs my thinking, but writing less so. I, I'm i pretty, well Geraldine's always telling me you need more landscape here. So, you know, we have complementary. I don't know if they're skills, but uh, whatever. We're good critics of each other because we, um, we write differently
2: so i assume you were each other's first readers yes absolutely why why, why wouldn't you be first and last first and, and
1: last. in between and yeah. nothing leaves the you can't even say leave the house anymore it's whatever <laughs> the, the you know we don't Does we never press the, the key on anything until unless we're, like, so embarrassed and we just want to get rid of it. And, you know, um, otherwise, every book review, every, really, everything we write, yeah, goes through the taste test of the other.
3: So, you know, so writing about King David, did he even live? You know, He, he is such a, it's not really history because he shimmers between myth and history and who can say what. But, so you can't, There's no written sources outside of the Bible on him. So what do you do? So um, I took my youngest son and we went and herded sheep because he started out as a shepherd, as do so many leaders in the Bible. And I'm like, what's with that? What is so great about herding sheep that leads on to, you know, as an entry-level position to being a later CEO of the country? (laughs) But, you know, Abraham, Moses, you know, the list is endless. They all start as shepherds. So I thought it was crucial to actually do that. So that's the kind of thing that
1: you can... Well, there's more to be said on the shepherd front now that you mention it. Sorry, enough about her book. Now about mine. Uh, John Brown, who is completely marinated in the Old Testament, is a shepherd and constantly... Conceives himself as such, and that's yeah. And he was a wool
3: merchant, right? Yes, I
1: mean he really is a shepherd, but he also—that's his image of himself.
3: And also, so we did—we figured something out. Um, Bizu, our younger son and I—we're there on this, you know, scorched hillside, and you realize that you have to—you have to really slow down, and you know, it's—it's a really slow life, but. Um, the person who actually owned these animals said, "I want you to do something. I want you to separate the sheep from the goats." <laughs> and I love it when metaphor comes alive <laughs> And there they were, this scraggy little skinny herd, and it was really hard, and you can 't do it until you figure out something about the creatures that you want to lead, you know, so you have to know that. Goats, because they're fleet-footed and fast, if you put pressure on them, they'll scatter and run away from you, whereas sheep who are slower will cluster together for safety in the flock and each will put their neck over the back of the other to protect from the predator that they're afraid of. So once you know that, easy to separate them. So it is really a kind of a lesson in leadership, I suppose. Know the people that you're trying to lead. So.
1: But also in reporting it on the ground. I mean, I don't imagine many novelists, some, I don't know, uh, go out and do that kind
3: of thing. Well, livestock wrangling usually is not required. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if I could... I.
2: I can I read, I, I was hoping you to, did you bring? I,
3: I did, I, I, you know, I can read you a little sheepy thing. Read us a sheepy thing, a and then quick, I'll wind up you know, with this half a paragraph. That I mean, I, I, would, rather, I would rather um, you know, have my eye poked out with a burnt stick than listen to a long reading, so I promise I'm gonna make this short. This is, my narrator is uh, the prophet Natan, and and I was intrigued uh, by a couple of mentions that uh, in in the book of Chronicles it says the life of David, first to last, is written in the book of Natan. We don't have it. It's gone, lost, so this is it. (laughs) And uh, so it's in his voice. I was 10 when I first saw him. My father hated idleness. So when the grape pressing was done and before the time for pruning the vines, he would send me with the goats to find better grazing beside the streams that cut a path through the mountains rising steep above our village. I did not mind this. I liked to be off by myself, away from the eyes of adults who always had some task or errand to demand of an unoccupied child. In those sun-blasted hills, I could lie prone on a rock and scan the bright hillside, doing little but casting a stone from time to time to redirect a goat that wandered too far from the flock. A boy could let his thoughts unspool in those idle hours, dreaming of a hundred things or of nothing. Sometimes, through the dense air that hung like mist over the salty sea, I would gaze across at the bare hills of Moab and wonder if there was a boy like me, lazing by a spring, and what his life was like, and what his thoughts were. But that day, the heat defeated me. I lay there and felt it press down upon me like a great-furred beast, smothering even the desire for thought. I fell into a heavy doze. The sting of a pebble roused me. Better wake up, little shepherd, or your flock will be halfway to Beersheba. The voice, amused, came from above and behind me. I scrambled to my feet and turned, blinking. He was on the next ridge, the sun behind him, its rays dancing like flames in his bright hair. He jumped lightly from the ledge and moved towards me. I raised my hand to shade my eyes and saw that he was a young man, perhaps 20, and armed. Dismay must have shone in my face. My fear was not caused by his short sword or his bow. It was the thought that I might have lost the flock. To lose even one goat was a whipping offense.
1: You're gonna make me read too. Yes, I think I, I, miss, I missed the memo about. <laughs> I didn't notice till today. So I will either.
2: <laughs> if there's something, something you work Oh, on good. Now.
1: So you didn't pick something. I didn't have any of my books with me. So this afternoon, I plucked out a couple pages of work in progress. Oh, fabulous! Okay, all right. right. Well, uh, maybe. Well, and
2: I was going to. We'll ask see. You.
1: You're the only people to hear this other than Geraldine. Um, and trigger warning. Uh, yeah, it's a little raunchy, um, <laughs> and uh, perhaps offensive to some. Um, Oh, okay, yeah, I need to (laughs) set this up. So I'm working on a book about, uh, it's traveling in the footsteps of Frederick Law Olmsted, who before he he designed Central Park and became a famous landscape architect, was really a bohemian, traveling the world, writing, goes to Merchant Marine to China, goes to Europe, whatever. And um, just before the Civil War, He went undercover for the New York Times, very new newspaper in the day, um, to write about the South at this moment of national crisis. He wrote uh, 50 or so dispatches for them and then three books about his Southern travels that are pretty much forgotten to everyone but um, historians of that era who regard them as classics. So I'm following his route uh, writing about what he saw then and what I see now at another time of national division, I guess you could say. So, this were, those are were a few pages I banged out from basically the beginning of my trip. Yeah, let's call it a rough draft, a possible beginning of the book, but please, like Boo and Hiss, all know to go elsewhere. This is, you know, I've hardly written anything. I'm just, whatever. The only lodging in Grafton was a low-slung motel with a smashed door at the entrance. Stepping past the shards of glass, I asked a man at the desk if there were any rooms available. You a coal miner, he replied. No, why do you ask? We sort of catered to them. Special deals. If so, there were no takers in sight. At first dark on a raw Friday night, my car was the only vehicle outside. The man handed me a key and said, 50 bucks. Minor or not, this seemed like a deal, until I entered my room. Broken heater, broken window, bleeding smoke alarm. Either the battery was dead or the last guest had tried to disable it. Cigarette butts swam in the toilet. Downstairs, I found a door by the lobby marked Pub. Inside, two women stared at video slot machines. After a while, one of them got up and served me a beer. It was my second day on the road, my first in West Virginia. It was also the last night of October, so I asked why I hadn't seen any trick-or-treaters on my way into town. Halloween was last night, the barmaid said. It was moved up to Thursday. Why's that, I asked. They say it's because there's a school football game tonight. Real reason, parents don't want their kids out on a Friday with all the meth heads partying it up. This was a scary image, children staying home on Halloween because there were real monsters and zombies about. Curious if this was so, I drained my beer and headed down Grafton's main street, which wound between mountains and railroad tracks. A neon sign winked from the window of a pool hall with yellow police tape across the door. Pushing it open, I found a dozen people at the bar, served by a woman dressed as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. As soon as I sat down, the man at the next stool offered to buy me a beer. Ron Childers was a bullet-headed, tattooed man in his 50s who repaired aircraft in the next county. Used to be coal and railroad jobs here, but now you got to get out of Grafton if you want to work, he said. Burns my ass, people drawing welfare and doing drugs while I'm busting my butt and paying taxes. Methamphetamine was so rife in... Yeah, I need water here. I'm like Marco Rubio here. (laughs) This is so dry, I'm dying. (laughs) Um, Methamphetamine was so rife in West Virginia that cooks had adopted a crude method called shake and bake, tossing chemicals in soda bottles and driving around to mix them. Vans burst into flames in midday traffic, passengers fleeing the scene with their clothes on fire. Those drugs make folks dumber than the retards in wrong turn, Ron said. When I looked at him blankly, he added... That's a horror flick set here about inbred mutants who trap and hack up people like so much possum. He smiled. Gotta have a sense of humor to take all the jokes about how backward we are. Amen, interjected the man next to him. He turned to me. You know the toothbrush was in- invented in West Virginia. No, I didn't. Otherwise, it would be the teeth brush. <laughs> Ron ordered us another round. <clears throat> and introduced me to a young woman named Jess who wore a tiny tank top, hot pants, thigh-high boots, and fake blood smeared across her neck and midriff. Jess worked on a road crew but was clad for Halloween as a member of a heavy metal band, the Butcher Babies. I'm that one, Carla, except for the knife, she said, displaying a picture on her phone of a singer thrusting a bloody dagger at her crotch. Jess looked up from her phone and studied my own costume. Jeans, work boots, plaid shirt, horn-rimmed glasses, Carhartt jacket with a notebook and pen stuck in one pocket. Let me guess, she said in an exaggerated drawl, Yankee boys spying on us hillbillies. <laughs> this was uncomfortably close to the mark. <laughs> I couldn't think of a clever comeback. I'm doing research, I told her, about what it was like here in the 1800s. Jess pondered this for a moment. Okay, history guy, here's a question. Did you know Mother's Day was invented here? I shook my head, awaiting the punchline. Some joke about incest? Instead, Jess led me to the door and pointed down the street. A Few blocks that way, big time shrine to all our great moms. Then she turned to greet a friend and share her butcher baby's picture again. Walking through the drizzle, it's almost over, I reached a statue of a mother and child beside a ch- church marked Mother's Day Shrine. A sign identified this as the site of the first Mother's Day, a tradition pioneered in 1908 by a local woman. A much larger building loomed directly across the street, an ornate brick and granite pile with Greek columns, a relic of the town's better days. The hulking edifice was vacant and in poor repair, but at its crown, above elegantly hewn laurels, I could just make out the letters B and O, the bygone railroad... I was following through the hills in the wake of a long-ago traveler. That's it.
0: That's Tony Horwitz and Geraldine Brooks speaking with Julie Cummins-Pickrell. Pickrell Pickrell is the former director of Aspen Words. Horwitz and Brooks are a married couple. Both are award-winning journalists and authors. Their conversation was part of a lecture series held by Aspen Words, the Aspen Institute's literary organization. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about Aspen Words at aspenwords.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thank you for listening.